If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, in which you in turn received, in which you also stand, though which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed you as of the first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters, at one time most of whom were still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we will proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. There's a lot there in those 11 little verses in the 15th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes an incredible story that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let us note that Paul does not tell us which scriptures he means, making it clear that Paul wasn't serving a Baptist or Church of Christ congregation. They'd have asked him to be more specific, Bibles out, ready for the chapter and verse. This passage gives us the chance to do some serious unpacking what it means to say that Christ died for our sins, what it means for that to happen in accordance with scriptures, what it means to say that Christ was buried, and what it means for us to claim that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. This is when preachers pull out $5 words like 
Christology, atonement, sanctification, and resurrection. But, but before we go there, let's get ourselves situated with the text. We are reading another church's mail. Paul is writing to particular people about particular concerns. The church in Corinth was a hot mess. In this one letter, Paul covers religious partisanship, incest, prostitution, celibacy, divorce and remarriage, speaking in tongues, inequality during common meals, intellectual arrogance, and everyone's favorite topic, money. By the time we get to the penultimate chapter of this letter, we find ourselves in deep theological water. The 15th chapter is focused exclusively on resurrection and is traditionally divided into three headings. Resurrection of Christ, which we read today, then resurrection of the dead, and then finally the resurrection body. So most sermons on this passage are about what Paul says about resurrection, what scholars say Paul says about resurrection, and what we should say about resurrection based on what Paul says about it and what scholars say Paul says about it. But for many of us, the entire message, not just the resurrection part, is problematic, loaded with words that are almost too heavy to bear that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Many of us were told what to believe about these statements, namely that they are to be taken literally, and we are to understand died for our sins as if Jesus were a substitute sacrifice for us. But is that really what it means? Paul and other early Christians understood Jesus as the decisive revelation of God. In Jesus, in what he was like, we see what God is like. In Jesus' passion for the kingdom of God and his challenge to the powers at the risk of his own life, we see the depth of God's love for us. In death, the pre-Easter Jesus was transformed into a post-Easter Christ, a symbol of the deepest kind of love and devotion. We can also say that Paul and early Christians did not understand the death of Jesus as a substitution for us. Sacrifice in biblical times had many meanings, none of them about substitution. There were sacrifices of thanksgiving, petition, purification, and to make amends, but none of these were about substitution, this in exchange for that. Jesus' death was indeed a sacrifice, but not because of a debt we owed to God because of sin. As Marcus Borg explains, we say a person sacrifices their life for a cause or for another person, even when a death is not involved, we sometimes speak of people sacrificing their lives for the sake of caring for others. Sacrifice and love go together. People who sacrifice their lives most often do so because of a greater love. There are several 20th century Christian martyrs that model this combination of sacrifice and dying for others. 
Martin Luther King Jr. sacrificed his life because he insisted on equality and justice. Oscar Romero, Archbishop of San Salvador, was killed in 1980 by an assassin because of his criticism of those in power who were oppressing the Salvadoran people. He, indeed, sacrificed his life because of his love for others. Neither of these deaths were substitutions. So also, we speak of Jesus sacrificing his life, being willing to die because of his love for others, without in any way implying that God required his death as a sacrifice so that we might be forgiven. He was killed because of his passion for a different and better kind of world. His life offered up because of his willingness to be faithful, even faithful to death on a cross. And that faithfulness caused a chain reaction. Paul tells us so. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than, as Henry said, 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. When we read this letter as a narrative, it's almost as if the story is really about love that can and has appeared to every generation. What's more, Paul's writing makes plain that the risen Christ is an experiential reality. Paul was a Jewish mystic. He constantly uses language associated with visions to describe the appearances of the risen Christ. He repeatedly uses the verb appeared, not only for the experiences of Cephas and the rest, but also for his experience, suggesting that they were, in this sense, similar. To call them visions suggests that they were not the kinds of experiences that could have been photographed, as a literal, factual reading of the gospel stories would suggest. To call them visions is also not meant to demean them as if they were only visions. Nobody who has had a vision would ever say it was only a vision. Rather, Paul's experience of the risen Christ carried the conviction that it was real and could be known. But real need not mean a transformed corpse whom others would have seen if they had been there. These appearances, these visions by all these people, it's, it's really rather astonishing. The list seems to go on and on. It's even more astonishing when we give more than a passing glance to the folks named, like, like Cephas, better known to us as Peter. Peter is one of the most prominent disciples. It is Peter to whom Jesus says, cast your nets into deep water. It is Peter who answers questions of Christology with, you are the Messiah. It is Peter to whom the keys to the kingdom of heaven are promised. It is Peter about whom Jesus says, on you I will build this church. 
Peter is the one who told Jesus that he would never let Jesus wash his feet. It was Peter who told Jesus he would never leave him. And it is Peter who draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the soldier who tries to arrest Jesus. And yet, and yet in spite of his promises, Peter abandons Jesus. Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Peter does not show up at the trial. Peter does not show up at the cross. Peter does not help take Jesus' body off the cross. Peter does not go with the women to the tomb early in the morning. He waits. He waits until they come back with the news, he is risen. To say that Peter seems to be a fair-weather friend is an understatement. Such loyalty when things are going well, but when the wheels come off, Peter is the first to head back to the fishing boat. And still, then he appeared to Peter. I mean, that seems odd. No one would blame the Christ if Peter had just been skipped. Just deserts and all, right? Then he appeared to Peter. It's almost as if the story is about a God who does not give up on us. Paul throws the rest of the disciples right alongside Peter. Paul calls them the twelve in today's passage. Then he appeared to the twelve those good-for-nothing, good-old-boy disciples who scattered to the four corners, just like Peter when things took a turn for the worse. The disciples who never understood Jesus' teaching, who argued about being the first and the greatest, who fought over who would sit in the place of honor. Then he appeared to the twelve. Those twelve it is enough to make one wonder if the Christ is a good judge of character. Then he appeared to the Twelve. It's almost as if the story is about faith as a journey, salvation that comes through wrestling with difficult questions that have even more difficult answers. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. I mean, that's just sloppy. I mean, Christ really needs to pull it together, practice a little discretion. Sinners and saints all mixed together like that? Who knows what kind of people were in that group? Didn't anyone tell God that paperwork is involved? There are documents to be checked. This sounds like a caravan. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. It is almost as if the story is about everyone being eligible for abundant life, regardless of pre-existing conditions. Paul seems most surprised that he too is included. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Paul knows his own story. This is Paul, who used to be called Saul, who had persecuted the early followers of the way. Saul was there when they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing Stephen. It didn't stop there. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is why Paul sounds so surprised. He was a known threat to followers of Jesus. He appeared also to me. And when was that, Paul? Paul doesn't give a particular instance in this passage. Some would immediately say, oh, it was on the road to Damascus, of course, and, and you remember that story. Paul saw a great light. He heard a voice and addressed it as Lord. The voice identified itself as Jesus. That, that might be the appearance to which Paul is referring, but... I have a different theory. Paul doesn't begin to follow Jesus immediately. Remember that the experience leaves Paul blind, and he is unceremoniously dropped off in Damascus, where he is laid up for three days alone, until a disciple named Ananias, moved by the Spirit, shows up to care for him. It was a risk for Ananias Paul hadn't done anything but caused suffering. Yet Ananias, having heard Jesus preach about loving one's enemies and praying for those who persecute you, served Paul, nursing him back to health. And this is when Paul's story takes a turn. It is only after receiving care from Ananias that Paul begins, as the text says, to proclaim Jesus. It is almost as if the story is about how we are to care for strangers, unaware as we are of the Spirit's work with them. If it is true that Paul was loved back to life by someone following the teachings of Jesus, then we know what to do, church. Perhaps this is why earlier in the letter Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three. And the greatest of these is love. Perhaps there is someone here who is under the impression that the good news is not for you but the Apostle Paul would tell you otherwise. Then he appeared also to me, is Paul's way of saying, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is hope for all of us. Your name goes right in the middle of all those other listed names. So don't be surprised, friend, when you have an experience that leaves you only able to say, he appeared also to me. And church, if this is to be true, 
Our role in this is self-explanatory. This message that Paul proclaims, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose on the third day, it's a story about proclamation and reception in, in, in all its many combinations and permutations. It's a story that tells us we are all worthy, that we are not defined by our last mistake. It's a story that reminds us that transformation is possible, a story about a love that appeared and keeps appearing. So do be on the lookout. Apparently love appears when you least expect it. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.